Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. This is the Tomorrow Christian Today. Looking at Genesis 15. I hope everybody's had a nice holiday. And I've heard many discussions about Christmas. If it has pagan roots and Christians used it, or maybe it's something that Christians have and pagans try to get their hands on it. So I don't really know which gets started, the chicken or the egg. But this is an opportunity for us to be able to speak into the collective consciousness of the world that Jesus Christ is God's greatest gift to mankind. Jesus coming as a baby is a sign that God fulfilled his promise that he made way back in Genesis 3.15, which has been called the eschaton, which is the pro-gospel, a gospel that Jesus, that God is going to send a savior and that savior is going to be bruised by the serpent, by the devil, by sin. But yet that savior is going to crush out sin, crush the serpent, crush the devil and destroy sin completely and reconnect us back to God. And Jesus Christ did that very thing. It's a wonderful time. Genesis 15 in the NLT. It says here, the Lord's covenant promise to Abram. Sometime, sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a voice and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. You know, when I see this, I guess this is what God speaks to all of us who are believers. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think God says that to me every day, all the time, and yet I still am. It's like I'm not trusting because I am afraid. There's something innately fearful in me. God says, don't be afraid. He said it to Abram and he's saying, and that same God in Genesis 15:1 is speaking to each and every one of us on a personal and intimate level. Abram says, oh, sovereign God, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? It kind of sounds like this, this is what is weighing on him. It almost sounds like an accusation. Like what good is it all if what you said that will come to pass is not coming to pass? And it sounds very human, but it also sounds like, is he blaming God? God has made all these promises to him. It's just not happening fast enough. I think a lot of times I think, Lord, it's just not happening fast enough. Like, am I mistaken? Is it even, why should, do I even bother to tell you what I feel? Like, I'm not expecting you to be a magic genie, but why bother tell you these things? Why bother open up my heart and ask you for things? Maybe I'm doing wrong. I'm being selfish. I'm not thinking. But he's, but Abraham says, since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. So I guess Abram is trying to just go to plan B or he's trying to reason it out. He's trying to think it out, which is what we all do. We all say that we trust God, but yet we want to work out what's under the hood. So many arguments in Christianity is about theology. One's per one person's opinion against another opinion. And all of these are opinions about things that we cannot see and really cannot prove. I can see things from history. I can read the Bible. I can read statements in the Bible. And we always say the Bible and the Bible only, but many times people will read the same Bible passage and have a different idea what it means, or they will seize upon a different perspective inside that verse. And when one person always says the Bible and the Bible only, and then they 
then they prepare to trumpet their opinion. I'm always really kind of leery of that person. I think there are some things in the Bible that are ubiquitous. They are common to all of us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means to me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no wiggle room for anything else. And I personally do not feel any need to call it Trinity, to call that Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does not say Trinity to me. That's Tertullian's word. And he has a right to it, but that's his opinion. I don't have to use his opinion if I don't want to. And that's my opinion. And you don't have to agree with my opinion either. And I'm not trying to be defiant, but I always, I'm very concerned when I hear people say the Bible and the Bible only, and it's only their opinion that counts or the people that agree with them. I always wonder why they can't see past themselves to say somebody else can read the exact same Bible passage and see it in a different way, see it from a different perspective. We're all on the outside of the grand elephant in the room and we're all looking in, but we all stand at different angles and different perspectives and we see different things based on how our minds function. And I think that's the more progressive attitude but that is my opinion. You don't have to agree. Verse three, you have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. I said that already. Verse four, the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. The Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Now, if I were Abraham and God said that to me, well, first of all, this is quite a detailed conversation. Like when you talk about your conscience tells you what's right and wrong, some people say, well, that's you talking. But this is a very detailed conversation. And it sounds to me like someone else recorded what the conversation that Abraham had. It sounds like somebody else was standing there and recorded this. Like who else would know what Abraham said to God? And the five books of the Bible, the first five books are supposed to be written by Moses. And if you were to say that the Lord revealed that to him um, through the Holy Spirit, I would believe that. I also remember reading that Moses, while he was in Egypt, had access to all the different libraries um, of Egypt. That it was it was a great it was a learning center of the world. It was the Mecca of the world. I mean, who could challenge the Egyptians in terms in terms of science and technology? I don't know enough about history to be able to say who could and who could not, if there in fact was anybody else. So it is possible that, you know, Moses could have gone to the great libraries in in Egypt the way I used to go to the University of Toronto and I would used to go into all the stacks that they had in the Sigmund Samuel Library. And in the Toronto Public Library, there was reams and reams of books. Is it possible that Moses read them and then later the Holy Spirit helped him to compile it when he was in the desert? I really don't know. I've often thought that the Holy Spirit did reveal to Moses, but I wasn't there and I don't know. But I do believe that this is an accurate um, recording of what actually happened between God and Abram. That's what I believe. God says you're going to have a lot of descendants. It doesn't sound metaphoric to me. It sounds like you're going to have a lot of kids, a lot of descendants. And it says, Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteousness because of his faith. 
When I was studying and I came to the realization that the system of law that I had been born into was wrong, um, when I was going to California, I happened to read Romans in the NLT, the whole thing on the plane. Because, you know, I'm sitting there and, you know, people are watching movies and I didn't feel like watching those movies. A lot of the movies are really horrible. They're really bad. I, I don't think it's good for your health, your emotional health to watch these kinds of violent movies. I like science fiction movies, but they're very violent. So I was reading the NLT. I find it to be very interesting. And I just read the whole book of Romans and I walked away from it with one verse in my head that says, God will harden whom he will harden and he will have mercy upon whom he will mer have mercy. But it seemed when I read the whole book of Romans and I read it very fast, of course, no, no deep dive. You know, I'm not a super cerebral dude, but it was like, if you try to get to God through law, it's useless. You really can't get to God through the law. It, you never could. The law is just a mirror. It's just a standard. And none of us can reach that standard. The only person that ever got to God through law was Jesus Christ. He was born under the law like all of us. And unlike all of us, he didn't fail. We all failed. And that's why Jesus died on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. And so he says, Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 11, I can't remember the exact verse, or it said there that um, I'm, it's, it's the New Testament. It's the New Testament in my blood. And also, I believe he says that in Mark 14. It's the New Testament. It's a new contract. It's not a contract of law. It's a contract of relationships. I want you to have a relationship with God. And Genesis 15:6 is that Abraham is believing God. He's trusting him. It's not like Abraham has to do something. What he has to do is he has to trust God. He has to love God. And it says, and the Lord counted him as righteousness because of his faith. This is righteousness by faith. This is believing that God has your best interests at heart. This is believing in God that God is real and that God cares about you and God is saving you. God is giving you salvation. You can't earn it. God is giving you a gift, but you do have to accept it and you do have to live by it and you do have to unwrap it and you have to live by God's teachings, which is loving God back. And that's what Genesis 15, 6 says to me. I look at John MacArthur's Bible here, so I have the ESV in front of me, and it says for the notes, the Apostle Paul quoted these words as an illustration of faith over and against works. Romans 4, 3, 9, 22, Galatians 3, 6, James 2, 23. Abram was justified by faith. Let me read Galatians 3, 6. Let's just see what it says. So I'm going to turn to Galatians. I'm going to turn to Galatians here. Let's just read it. Righteousness by faith. What did I say? Galatians 3, 6. It says, Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It says, Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, as righteousness. So John MacArthur says in the notes for Galatians 3.6, so it's Genesis 15.6 and Galatians 3.6. Now you can tie it together in your mind. He says, as he does in Romans, see note on Romans 4.3, Paul, quoting Genesis 15.6, uses Abraham as proof 
that there has never been any other way of salvation than by grace through faith. Even the Old T Testament teaches justification by faith. So why did God have the Jews doing the moral law, the, the Ten Commandment law, the other 603 commandments, the sacrifices? Why did God do this if it was never by the Old Covenant? Well, I believe that, I believe from memory, I can't quite remember if it was Romans 9 or 10, where where God, um, where where Paul says um, that it's it's really, it's just, it's tutoring. The Ten Commandments is just a tutor. It's like training wheels for a bike. It helps you to get in the right path. But training wheels on your bike doesn't mean you can ride your bike. It means you can ride your bike with training wheels. But the day comes when you have to take the training wheels off. I believe actually it's in somewhere in Galatians where it says that the law is just um, a, a tutor. It was just meant to be a temporary tutor until at such time that the Son could free us, that Jesus could give us the new co covenant, which is love. And love is higher. It, it sounds simpler, and maybe it is, but it's harder. Romans 3, um, Romans 13, 8, sorry, says, love fulfills the law. Jesus says, I have fulfilled the law. So Genesis 15, 6, on the surface, when I first read that a long time ago, it sounded really simple, too simple. Oh, all I have to do is have faith, and I, I'm, I'm righteous. I, I think it's a lot harder than it sounds, but it's, it's, it's very simple. It's simple, but hard. The Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. Doesn't, that God, doesn't God say that to all of us? Doesn't God say to each and every one of us of faith? He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who brought you out of your former life. I am your God. I am your father. I am your salvation. Isn't that why we celebrate Christmas? I mean, when was Jesus born? We don't know if it's December 25th. Nobody knows. But at this time, everybody, everybody's eyes, everybody's collective consciousness is being... Um, is being, um, what's the word, being directed to the Christ child, to the one who the wise men worshipped. It says in the Bible that when they saw him, they worshipped the child with his mother. They didn't worship Mary too. So the whole Mary worship, I don't know where that came from. And in my old church, they were worshipping this other lady who's buried in Battle Creek. She's not a prophet. You don't worship other human beings. Jesus is the son of God and he's the son of man. They worshipped the, the Christ child. Because the Christ child is God's promise. It's, it's his covenant that he made with the whole human race that God is going to save you by faith. We trusted in God that he would save us. And this little baby, this tiny little baby, helpless as he was at the time, was God's salvation to all of us, was God's promise to the whole of mankind. And this is the time during the holiday season that when people are aware of this, that we can speak into that collective conscious, consciousness, that we can say why we're Christians, that we can show people, that we can have services where people come to church. We had a Christmas Eve um, service. People are singing hymns and maybe they're thinking, why am I doing this? Why do we have Christmas? What is this Christ child? Why is it important to me? Why do they keep talking about salvation? Why are we celebrating this person?
Why are we celebrating this Jewish baby? Why is he so important? That This is the time when there's a little bit more influence of the gospel. And it's a wonderful time because as we get gifts, we're reminded that God gave us his greatest gift. He gave us his perfect son so that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. Amazing. It never gets old for me, folks. It never gets old. I think about it more and more every, because it seems that all the things of this world are temporary. I also read 1 John in the NLT and says, the world is passing away. The world doesn't have anything for you permanent. All it has is death and taxes. And quite frankly, a lot of heartache too. Verse eight, Abraham replied, O sovereign God, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? Doesn't this sound like a battle of faith? It sounds like he's struggling with his faith. It says in John MacArthur's notes, a question not of veiled accusation at the delayed fulfillment, but of a genuine request for information and assurance. I want assurance that what I have is true. Don't you? How can I know? How can I have that faith beyond faith, the faith like iron, that what I have is true? I guess we have to believe that God will reward us, that if we ask for faith, he will give us that gift. And if we ask for more faith, God will give us more faith. Maybe sometimes, you know, when you say, God, help me to be more loving. So God throws people into your path that are not loving. So you can either become bitter, less loving, or you can become better, more loving. It's something we all struggle with. So when you ask God for more faith, maybe he's going to allow you to be in circumstances you'd rather not be in. Not be in. Uh, circumstances that are going to really challenge the faith that you do have. But I guess that's the way the gym is. Either you go to the gym and you lift weights that don't challenge you and you never change, or you try to lift weights that do challenge you and you do adapt. You do grow stronger. Although I haven't really made a lot of gains, so maybe that's not a good example, but you know what I mean. You are going to adapt. Everybody's going to adapt, some faster, some slower but God will give you faith if you ask. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. A ah, three, it's always three years old. Interesting. So Abram presented all these things to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. Boy, that sounds a lot like Revelation 19, where the angel says, come to the great supper where all these um, dead carcasses are. It's kind of scary, but he cuts all these animals in half. And I was thinking, boy, this is a really weird story. You know, why, why do it that way? Um, so John MacArthur says that the sign of ancient covenants often involved the cutting in half of animals so that the pledging parties could walk between them, affirming that the same would happen to them if they broke the covenant. Well, that sounds like a really good reason because you're going to cut an animal down the half. Um, that sounds kind of gross, actually, very bloody. I'm not really a hunter type, so I can't imagine what that must have looked like, but that's what the scripture says, and I believe it. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. That sounds a lot like Adam. Adam fell into a deep sleep, a deep trance, and when he was sleeping, then God took a rib from him and made the woman. The woman was to be a part of man and to be a helpmate for the man. 
Not to say that the woman is inferior to the man, but it was, they were supposed to help each other. The man is supposed to love the woman, but I digress. But it says, but it seems that God is doing a great thing, but he's falling into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness comes over him. Terrifying darkness. Wow. God put him to sleep, says Johnny MacArthur, because the covenant did not involve any promise on his part. He would not walk through the pieces as a pledge. So Adam does not walk through the through the pieces. And when he, if he were to do it, if there's a covenant based on our merits, our works, our ability to not sin, that covenant would fail completely because we've never been able to, to match God's perfection. And your, your salvation is not based on men's promises because lots of people promise people things. Politicians promise us things um, and politicians can't deliver. And we get really angry with them but yet we do want politicians. It's not like we got rid of the politicians. We still want them. We still believe it. And yet deep down we know the politicians make promises based on variables and circumstances they cannot control. A politician says, I'm going to lower your taxes. I want to put more money in your pocket. Oh, yes, please. I need more money, more money for working class citizens. I love it. Give me some. But then all of a sudden, gas prices go up and the politician says we can't help it it's not in our control when God makes us a promise it is in his control all the variables under his control and when God makes us a promise he keeps it and he said that he would give us salvation and he kept it in the form of Jesus he said that he would give us salvation and mercy and God does it and nobody can tell God not to do it and nobody can destroy God's control. When God says he's doing something, he's doing it. When he opens the door, it opens. And when he shuts the door, it shuts. Some vultures swoop down to, to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. And, oh, I got, ahead, I got uh, behind myself. Then in verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. So this is what God says to Abram. And it's actually, it re represents an approximated number that is precisely 430 years, Exodus 12, verses 40, according to John MacArthur. So God says that your, your descendants are going to be slaves. I will punish the nation that enslaves them. Egypt got punished. Any nation that messed with the Jews got punished. Now, of course, Abram is not really a Jew. He's the ancestor of the Jews, but he's not really Jewish, you know. I mean, I've heard people argue it, um, you know, I've, I've heard people argue it both ways. But, you know, those are his descendants and his descendants become Jewish, right? They become the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. It says, and in the end, they will come away with great wealth. In brackets in verse 15, as for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. It seems to me that God is giving them grace, the Amorites. A delay in judgment occasion the delay in covenant fulfillment. But it seems that God gives grace to all. God loves all and he gives the Amorites a grace period and this is the age of grace I was reading a new version today 
and it said, fill in the blank here of all the people that you have just said it's impossible for them to change. And, it, and the blank was, fill in, the, fill in the names in your head of people in your family that have, or, or that you know that you don't believe can change. Whether it's, and it said, whether it's a friend, a family member, an uncle, a, a spouse, an ex-spouse, your children, people that you work with, people that you know uh, that you truly believe cannot change. And then it says something about when you believe something is impossible, that's when the God of the impossible gets going. And I definitely had some names of people that I have written off and ashamed, and I was ashamed when I read that. And I realized, you know what? It's not up to me if I, I, I ran out of grace to give them. I'm not giving them grace. I'm actually judging them. And I said that a true Christian gives grace to others and applies law to themselves. But I ran out of grace to give the people that I think can't change. And the Bible plan said that when you do something like that, you're not having faith. You're not having faith in God. You're saying to God, I don't have enough faith in you to make you change people that I have written off. Is that really what I want to do? The answer is no. Verse 17, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So there's like a sleep, he's in a darkness, he's kind of in a doozy, a dropsy. It, it, it's almost like the one and when Adam was going to sleep and all of a sudden God's going to operate on him. I don't know, maybe he fell asleep. He didn't know anything. He didn't know time passed, but he, had, he didn't have a hand in it. And it says the Lord, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Wow. Them's a lot of people. And God says all this, all that land is going to be the land of your descendants. Isn't that something? I mean, John MacArthur says, the various peoples who inhabited the land are named. Such precise detailing of the nations in the land of Canaan attests again to the specificity of the promised land in God's promises. God gave the land to the children of Israel who are on this planet. And I think that is the same land that God is going to give to the children of the new Jerusalem, the new covenant, and the new earth, that particular land. But of course, it will be transformed. God's word is amazing, and everything is connected to everything else. And I'm sure if you read this chapter, you will see things that I could not see and will never see. But that's why God gave the Bible to all of us. We all should read the Bible, make it as fun and simple as possible. I'm not a pastor. I'm doing this for fun and I'm doing it to edify myself and I would like to be able to influence people for Jesus, for the good, for God, for the truth and for, for the spiritual truth and for eternity. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. God bless you all.